Hi, welcome to the podcast, Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Marna. Hi, Mike. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Marna. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. This week and next, we're talking about ethical questions posed by at-home DNA testing kits. You know them as Ancestry.com and 23andMe.com. You send your saliva to the company, and for a fee, your DNA comes back sequenced and interpreted for you. The problem is the companies who sequence and store DNA operate in uncharted territory between lightly regulated consumer goods and highly regulated medical services. Genetic testing companies aren't bound by HIPAA, the law that protects personal medical information. We're going to get more into the legal implications of this next week. This week, we're talking about these DNA testing kits in the context of identity and human relationships. I personally haven't used one of these kits, but my younger sister has, and she was telling my mom and me about it, and she said, yeah, no surprise there, we're mostly Irish and English. And my mom said to me, there you go. You don't need to do it now. Just take a look at your sisters. And I said to my mom, but what if we don't have the same daddy? (laughs) Which I thought was just hilarious, and my sister did too. But my mom didn't think it was funny at all. She just looked at me deadpan, and she said, you have the same daddy. Well, the reason I made... Marna, Marna, that was pretty bold. (laughs) It was all in good fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is going to move into our inheritance fairly shortly. My my daughter said, well, since you and your sister look exactly alike, I'm pretty sure you have the same daddy. But the reason I made a joke about it is because I've personally heard anecdotes. People have found out that their father's were not their fathers after all because of these DNA kits. So it seems to me that these DNA kits are revealing some long-held secrets. And I'm usually of the opinion that the truth always happens and sunshine is the best disinfectant. Therefore, this is good. Some of these secrets are so heartbreaking. I wonder if we as a society are prepared to confront this Pandora's box or is technology outpacing bioethics right now? Here's one I'd like to discuss. There's a woman, let's call her Betty, whose biological father died when she was young. Betty also has a brother. Betty grows up, marries, and has children of her own. One of her children does an Ancestry.com DNA kit, and the results show the existence of a first cousin that nobody knew about. They follow the breadcrumb trail, and what is revealed is this. Betty and her brother don't have the same father. Long story short, Betty's mother had an affair while she was married. Betty's mother got pregnant from the affair, but never revealed this to her husband, if she knew at all. The husband thought Betty was his. The husband died at a young age. Betty's biological father, who didn't know about her, went on to marry and have children of his own. When Betty became aware of the truth of her situation, she reached out to her biological father, but he did not want to meet her, nor did his children want to meet their half-sibling. To make this more poignant, Betty's brother also died fairly young, so she had no living siblings at all. Kelly, I'm going to start with you. What do you think of this situation? Well, it's sad. It, it really is sad. Is. But it does show that even people who choose not to partake in these DNA tests can be identified through the uploaded DNA by relatives and how one person can really impact their family and all these other people. So, for example, you've chosen not to have a DNA test, but your mom or your daughter or your sister has. And that could have impacted you because they have similar DNA, they have common ancestors, and that could impact you should 
something be disclosed through the test. And that's what happened to Betty. I think the issue really is, can we give informed consent? And then even if Betty's daughter gives informed consent, it still impacts Betty. I just don't know that there's any analogy that will work in this situation, except that you need to think about others when you proceed. When you give your DNA to these organizations, whether it be 23andMe or Ancestry.com or Helix, there's like 25 of them. You are giving DNA also that belongs to your children and their children and your parents, and you're impacting a lot of other lives and perhaps people you're not even related to. It's a, it's a lot to kind of take in and make a decision based upon. It really is. And ultimately, shouldn't someone, it is their body, it is their DNA, shouldn't they be able to just go ahead and you know, do a test, a recreational test, because they're curious about, you know, who they're related to, about their background, about some medical and health-related issues. There's really nothing wrong with it. Right. But that's what exactly what I mean by technology is outpacing our ethical grasp on these things. I know Mike will have really insightful comments, but I don't know that ethics could ever catch up to bioethics in this situation. Well, let's, let's ask Mike. What do you think, Mike? Well, Kelly, thanks for the cue there, but I tell you, that's a lot of no pressure. pressure. That's a lot of pressure, <laughs> Kelly. I couldn't agree more with both of you. This is the Wild West, folks. There's no sheriff in this territory because no matter your own personal decision, it is highly likely that your information is going to be out there one way or another, which may have a, a huge impact on you. And our scenarios today do a great job of highlighting some of the unforeseen consequences. I guess I'd say that from my own personal perspective, I I don't know where my... I've not done either one of these tests, but I, I know that my DNA is certainly well-documented because in the military, they do that all the time now. You give DNA samples for a variety of things. So it's out there. It's just a question of who has it. I often think about the way in which we keep reading in the headlines how our social security numbers and our credit card numbers and our all these other things are compromised through hacks. So when when will our biological data be hacked or has it already been hacked? So yeah, the, the potential for this going sideways on somebody is significant. So that's one side. The other I would contrast it with is that, you know, I'm sort of an amateur uh, genealogist, and it is fascinating to dig into your past. And, and everything I've done to date has been through paper, paper and phone calls and that kind of thing. But it's for some people, it's very compelling to find out more about their ancestors. This is the biggest tool ever in terms of working in that domain in genealogy. Because if you tick all the boxes with one of these companies and you say, I want to know who my cousins are, and oh, by the way, my cousins may contact me, you've opened pathways which you would never find on paper in terms of discovering your genealogy, your heritage. So it's, I don't know, I, I am very conflicted on this one. I am too. And and if you think about as recently as 30 years ago, we couldn't even have conceived of DNA testing in genealogy. Imagine what it's going to be like 30 years from now, what possibilities and potentialities are out there. We have no idea. Yeah. yeah. And your paper 
you know, your paper research, Mike, is fascinating, but it could be wrong, right? Like, oh, absolutely. if your dad isn't your dad, you're researching a whole line that that's right. doesn't belong that's right. to you. You know, that's what happened to Betty. It's, it's really difficult, and I do think the genealogy companies recognize that. I know that 23andMe launched a support page, I think last year, called Navigating Unexpected Relationships and it includes resources for counseling. 23andMe says, we're transparent in communicating to customers what they may learn. And they really are. I went to their webpage and they have, it's just three bullets. It's really simple and you kind of have to scroll down to find it. But it says, there may be some consequences of using our services that you haven't considered. And it says, you may discover things about yourself and or your family members that may be upsetting or cause anxiety and that you may not have the ability to control or change. You may discover relatives who are previously unknown to you or may learn that someone you thought you were related to is not your biological relative. And then the third item gets into what Mike talked about, which is in the event of a data breach, it's possible that data associated with your identity could be obtained and used against your interests. The problem is with this type of informed consent is that in a sense you're consenting for a lot of people that share your DNA and is that okay? I don't well, know. Well, that's a big question and it's hard to answer. It really it really is. Yeah. I mean, all you can do is try to you want to pursue what you're interested in and it really can be fun and fascinating, but you also want to think about others and how what you're doing might impact them. Ancestry.com, putting those bullets on there, 23andMe, full disclosure, you might find out something that might rock your world. Not in those words. That tells me that that has happened quite a lot. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I guess this is very pessimistic, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. One way or another, you know, look at how quickly we map the human genome. I mean, people yeah. thought that would take decades, right? And then we used computing, modern computing power and artificial intelligence. And, you know, it happened in a fraction of the time that people anticipated. You've already asked this hypothetical question, Marna. Where will we be 10, 20, 30 years from now? You know, it might very well be that genealogy is uh, just a given. You know, you know exactly who you're related to. And it's all out there on searchable databases. Furthermore, with our DNA out there and... I'm of the belief that most of it inevitably will be, whether you go to one of these services or not. You know, how's that going to affect our healthcare system, our insurance system? Thinking back to the military again, we have all these, you know, for people who hold certain positions, like involved with nuclear weapons, for example, there are all these criteria that must be met and maintained for them to be part of that system. So in the future, will we do a genetic screening on anybody who's in a critical or sensitive position before we allow them to take that job or even to join the military? It becomes 1984 Orwellian, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Because, you know, they're going to look at you and say, oh, We see that gene that indicates you could become depressed or you have some kind of a a proclivity towards mental health issues. There you Uh, go. You can't work here. Sorry. Insurance is a little higher. We're afraid we might have to pay a little bit more. When it comes to to athletics, you know, they're able to identify that you, you know, you have muscle composition that is commonly found in elite power athletes. So we're going to take you, you know, like 
like the Soviet Union used to do, and we're going to take you away from your mother when you're five, and we're going to have you lifting weights or swimming or doing, you know, throwing the javelin, doing something, you know, where, which requires that kind of musculature. If you have the endurance gene, well, we're going to put you over here. It just, like you said, or perfect pitch. It just, and then designer babies. Yeah. It does it, sound like a science fiction movie. Yeah. It's, it, it's scary. Even the designer babies thing is here in some ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So just to pile on, Kelly, think about the first time they select a crew for a manned space flight into deep space. You know, figure out who are the six or eight people that they're going to send. And they have access to really comprehensive genetic screening. Are they going to overlook that tool before they put somebody into hibernation and uh, send them, you know, on a 8, 10, 12, 15-year voyage? I don't know. Not with that investment. No way, right? <laughs> yeah. Or more prosaically, is the insurance company going to include them in their actuarial pool if they're a bad <laughs> risk based on yeah. their DNA? Right. We're going to talk about that more next week. My, oh my, I'm exhausted already. <laughs> no, it is the Wild West. <laughs> Stick with us. We'll be right back with another scenario for you. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. This week, we're talking about those at-home DNA kits and the Pandora's box that the results are opening for some people. I have a scenario for you, which I read in a book review a magazine of all places. In the spring of 2016, through a genealogy website to which she had whimsically submitted her DNA for analysis, author Danny Shapiro received the stunning news that her father was not her biological father. She woke up one morning and her entire history, the life she had lived, crumbled beneath her. She had been raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, but her parents had gone to a fertility clinic in the 60s and her mother became pregnant through donor sperm. This secret, which they kept from Danny Shapiro for 50 years, became the subject of her book, Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. So I have not read this book, but I'm definitely going to order it and read it because I'm I'm just fascinated by this. Um, Mike, what do you think? Well, this is the collision of nature and nurture. So she's nurtured as an Orthodox Jew, but her father wasn't an Orthodox Jew. I don't know. I'm kind of overwhelmed by this. I mean, I can only imagine the... It is overwhelming. The, the, you know, what what does someone think when, especially when you're raised in a a culture which is so immersive, such as Orthodox Judaism, and, and then you find out that, oh, by the way, you weren't organically of that family. It's a, it's a heavy lift. And so this is what we, it echoes back to scenario one here. This is what we're talking about. You may be confronted with things that you just didn't see coming. As, as we've prepared for this episode, it's caused me to think very carefully about, ooh, do I want to do this or not? But I'm still of the opinion that even if I do it or not, you know, even in the course of my lifetime, this is going to catch up with all of us. Yeah. I haven't done it because of my privacy concerns with that database. But you touched on this, Mike. You were in the military. I was in the military. Don't they have tissue samples of us in the military? I don't know about tissue. They certainly have. I remember having given my DNA regularly, especially before you deployed to a combat zone. And, you know, you can see the obvious application there. They want to be able to tell, you know, when they have remains that they can't identify. I mean, DNA is a 
very, very, it's a foolproof and very effective way to identify remains. I don't know when you left the military, Marna, but I, I think that's something that was done, you know, as this technology advanced, the military took advantage of it for their own purposes. Now, what else has been done with that? Who knows? You know, I'm now six years out of the military. Yeah. Well, Kelly, what are your thoughts on the uh, case of Danny Shapiro? Oh, I really feel for her because you're you're brought up and being an Orthodox Jew, I'm sure it was just an integral part of who she was, you know. I'm sure it was inseparable from the way she viewed herself. So I can imagine the struggle. Half kidding, I will say that your status as a Jew does depend on your mother. So it does. She's good there. Um, she's got that going for her. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, really? I mean, traditionally, your status oh, yeah. as a Jew depends on the on your mother. If she was Jewish, you're Jewish. But your tribal affiliation, um, like priest, Levi, etc., Judean, was determined by your father. So, I, I, I do. You know, I'm half kidding, but I, I do think there's some power in having um, a Jewish mother uh, for her. But to, to go to the larger issue, and, and an interesting issue, is the sperm donor issue. And it's much more prevalent than I realized. I mean, I know it's something uh, that's become very common in the last 15 years or so, but the Wall Street Journal had an article on Valentine's Day this year about the issues arising from DNA testing. And the two men they focused on both had fathers who were sperm donors, and they did not realize that their their father who raised them was not their biological father. And the first gentleman, was very interesting, uh, is 68, and uh, his father had been a doctor, and apparently it wasn't uncommon for doctors to also act as sperm donors for a little of ec- extra money, either at the hospital. That wasn't there. uncommon, really? Yeah, that's what the article said. Oh. I didn't know that. I didn't um, either. So he learned that there were a number of relatives in the Philadelphia area that had used sperm donation to conceive and that they were all from the same donor. And eventually he learned that he had 46 half-siblings. Wow. Yeah. Now that's a stunning discovery. Yeah. And the group kind of came getting back to ethics. Some of the siblings were more involved in the group, like they had a Facebook page, um, and they all handled things differently. Some had discussed it with their fathers or their families um, that raised them. Some hadn't. They all agreed uh, that they weren't going to give out information about each other's identifications. um, And they also would not, you know, reveal the donor's identification. So I I found that interesting. So, Kelly, you're saying that they never knew who that one individual was? I'm saying that some of them know who he is. Right. But some did not want his ID revealed. I so see. So the group as a whole agreed not to do so. I see. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. So they sort of had, and the second donor, it was something similar where they, you know, the the family members, the people that were related to each other through the sperm donation kind of agreed on a loose set of ethics or rules regarding how they would deal with the situation. And where did you read this article, Kelly? Um, it was in the Wall Street Journal, and we can put the, the link up. It was February 14th, 2020 was the date of the article. We'll put a link up about that. It was interesting. It, it kind of it, it went through how each gentleman sort of negotiated what he was dealing with and sort of the shock of, of learning and, you know, that, that their father wasn't their father and they had mm-hmm. another father. And the second donor, it was quite interesting because 
he reached out to a half-sibling who was just stunned and was kind of like, what do you want? What do you want from me? And he was like, I I just want to get to know you. And then, you know, she said, I need to think about it because she had to be concerned, like, what happened? Did my father have an affair? What, you know, what's going on here? And Mm -hmm. her father was deceased. Ultimately, she decided to go to her mom. And in this situation, too, the donor was a doctor, a male doctor, and her mom said, oh, yeah, you know, early on, he was a donor. You know, you got extra money for that. And he needed the money. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so then and I see another ethical dilemma here, too. Is it incumbent on the parents to tell their children about their conception? Like if, you, if they went to a fertility clinic or a sperm donor? Ooh, this is I mean, echoes of inheritance. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. would say yes. I agree. The more communication, the better. I but, agree. Oh, thanks, Mike. <laughs> but in defense <laughs> Kelly, that's not these... unusual. I agree with you all the time. <laughs> wow. You sound so surprised. I, uh, I was going to say, in, in defense of these two gentlemen whose families did not tell them, I think for that generation, you know, people that were born in the 50s, yeah. that would have been extremely uncommon and, and just frowned upon to share that kind of intimate detail with a child. It's none of their concern. I could I could see like one of my grandparents saying, well, you know, what do you care? I would also say from the perspective of a man that if you if you're not virile, if you can't father children, that's not something you want to tell a whole lot of people. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a certain I didn't even think of it from that perspective. No, really. That's a great I mean, point. no, absolutely. I mean, there's a certain a certain shame there, I think, for some men. And in this book, Inheritance, they talked a little bit about the procedures at this fertility clinic and how they they shrouded the actual conception in a lot of mystery, so they would never really know whose sperm it is, the the husband's sperm or the donor's sperm, you know. Uh, Right, right. They mix it all up and... Yeah, uh, it's very different today. You know, I have a, a close friend who whose husband, unfortunately, was sterile and just a terrible shock. And, you know, and they they researched and looked at a lot of different things. And ultimately, they decided to go with a sperm donor. You know, they even met with a counselor who indicated that I would have thought like having a family member act as the donor would make sense. But actually, as they learned more, the, the counselors recommended against that and said there were a lot of issues with that. So mm. then they spent a weekend like going through books and choosing a sperm donor. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And they had done a list of what, you know, of what they were looking for, what was important to them. It was very interesting. And that's what they went with based upon their list and reviewing. And then they actually bought the whole lot of that particular gentleman that was available. Now, who knows what else had occurred prior to that time. They may know, but so they have two children at this time. When you say the whole healthy. lot, they purchased all the available sperm so that no one else could have access to it? Is that what you mean? Right, from that donor wow, that they interesting. chose. And they had two and children then, by the same sperm donor. Exactly. Interesting. So well, that, that brings some implications, is, too, but... Anyhow. Right, and the wife is the mom, and then this gentleman is the dad of both kids. So they're full siblings, and um, they're healthy, they're doing great. Some of the basic kind of, you know, things that I think that people look for, and I think that this couple looked for is, you know, like similar coloring to dad, you mm-hmm. know, some s- similar mm-hmm. features. He joked that the guy had to be six feet tall, <laughs> <No> <laughs> shorter than six feet. Um, it was funny. They had, you know, they had different... 
they had different things that that they wanted to include in the mix. I'm curious, are they telling the kids? I don't know. I never asked that. Mm. And the kids are very young. But I know that they were very open about it um, and felt strongly that people should know uh, about their decision and um, about their path. Lots of interesting stories. It's a fascinating glimpse in the human condition here. We'll be right back with more Ethics and Etiquette Talk. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. This is the part of our show where we each like to leave you with something to think about for the coming week. It's called End Notes. I'll start with you, Kelly. Sure. I just wanted to uh, provide a quote from Professor Alondra Nelson. Um, she's written extensively about the ethics of DNA testing and has argued for a model that recognizes the social power of DNA tests. She's encouraged that we find a framework to better address the ethical questions raised by the developments such as DNA testing. She suggests individuals who take the test should consider ethics through a broader lens, lens asking themselves, who else has value and who else matters besides me? That's beautiful. And, and what she talks about is kind of what we're trying to do here on this show, on this topic, which is discuss the social power of DNA and relationships and you know, the, a framework to talk about this. Yeah, and it's never a bad idea to think about who else has value and who else matters besides me. <laughs> never I a bad we idea. we all can get yeah, kind no, that's, of stuck. That's great, Kelly. Yeah, that comes up a lot. Mike, what would you like to say? You know, I just ask our listeners to remember back to the good old days when you opened up your computer or you hit the on button and you sat down and you thought that whatever you were doing on your computer was just you and you alone. And you had sort of absolute privacy because, oh, by the way, you were in the room all by yourself. And what you bought and how you spend your time and what movies you watched was just, that was all yours. And we now know that's not the case. All of this data is tracked and cataloged and then in some ways used against us as we are marketed with things that people think we want to buy just based on what we do when we're online. So I think we're sort of in the same place perhaps even a little more advanced when it comes to this whole genetic testing thing. It's not just you. It's it's everybody now. You know, I read in uh, one of the articles you sent out, Marna, you know, in an era of dwindling privacy, is this the last frontier? And I think if anybody does this, they need to realize that they they really forgo any pretense towards privacy if they if they go down this path. And like Kelly mentioned, they may bring some other people with them that oh, by the way, happen to be blood relatives. Yes, and there's also open source uh, DNA databases. So it's also totally volunteer, but if you're contributing your DNA to the open source, you're also contributing everybody you're related to's DNA as well. Right, and those are the, the sites I think we'll talk about next week that law enforcement can go into. They can place a suspect's DNA into that common database, you know, represent that it belongs to them or put John Smith on it and then see where the matches are. Dart the family tree from there and get to that suspect. And there have been some stunning developments in that area, which we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk wow. about legal, legal wow. privacy and crime-solving aspects of this topic next week. What about you? Do you have a similar incident to tell us about or a question to pose? 
Leave us a comment or a voicemail at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. If you want to support what we're doing, please recommend our podcast to your friends and leave a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marn Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us this week, and please join us again next week when we present part two of DNA testing. See you then.